Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Deblaina Chakraborty. And today you're in for a treat because we're going to be talking about five pretty amazing shipwrecks. And the really cool thing about it is... You guys picked all of these. Yeah, on Facebook, we asked for some recommendations, and you guys gave us awesome ones. And I mean, a lot, too. I think there were 70-something comments just on Facebook. Yeah, I think we could do a shipwreck-only podcast series for the next six months. <laughs> Coming <all> soon <laughs> from How Stuff Works. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so we're only going to do five for this episode, but we might be tempted to to revisit this again because y'all know that I like shipwrecks. I think, Dublina, you're certainly growing to like them. Yeah, least. I love I love shipwreck stories, that's for sure. Some of them are kind of sad for me to stomach. Some but. Them, yeah, they are sad, and I, I don't want to sound um, too light about it, <laughs> but... You know, they're interesting, too. That's that's what I enjoy about them. Yeah, absolutely. It's not just about the event, the wreck itself. It's all the things that you learn about a particular culture, a particular time period from the things that are found. If they're found, you know, if there's an excavation that takes place and all the things that you get from there. Yeah, and the consequences. And I think the recovery efforts alone are really interesting stories. We talked about that a little bit when we were discussing those Roman shipwrecks last fall. You know, just the, the recovery effort is is pretty interesting. All of the people who work on it, the archaeological work. All the fish sauce involved. <laughs> fish sauce, yeah, that was right. I forgot about that. Thanks for 
Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> but anyways, we're going to kick this off with the shipwreck that sort of made us think that maybe a, a series or a list like this would be cool. It was something that a listener wrote in to suggest, the Raul Maria shipwreck. And I just thought it was so neat. It, it tied in different interests and different things that you wouldn't expect all into one shipwreck, which I, I think that's what they do, right? Yeah. And it tied in art, too, it as we'll see. But before we can get into the art, we need to give you a little bit of backstory about the Frau Maria. So in the 1970s, Dr. Christian Alstrom found documents in the Finnish National Archives relating to a sunken Dutch merchant ship. And that's the ship we're talking about right now. Yeah, it had been traveling from Amsterdam to St. Petersburg, and it sank in a storm in the Baltic off the southern coast of Finland way back in the autumn of 1771. So it was quite an old wreck by the time Alstrom learned about it. And a further search of documents in the archives and other sources uncovered the ship's protests, which included the logbook, but also a really tantalizing list of items that had been salvaged from the wreck because it didn't go down immediately like some of the wrecks we're going to discuss. There was time to get a few of the precious items off off board. Yeah, and that list made the hunt for the Frau Maria a really popular enterprise with among amateur divers throughout the 1970s. But it wasn't until 1999 that the society dedicated to the search found the wreck, the actual wreck, using side-scan sonar. Yeah, our old friend, side-scan sonar, how you find ships these days. So the remains that they found were remarkably well-preserved. 90% of the hull is intact. And this makes it a really great way to learn about Dutch shipbuilding at the time and what a like what a typical Dutch merchant ship would have been like because it is so remarkably well preserved but that's that's not why we're talking about it it's not just a nice typical Dutch merchant ship it's what might still be inside that's the real kicker because we have the custom toll records in Denmark and the log of the salvaged items and that lets us know some of the luxury items or goods that you would expect to be on board there's sugar and cloth and zinc and mercury fortunately they've determined the mercury has not leaked into the Baltic dye just just the typical things you'd think would be on the ship. No fish oil, though. No fish oil. But there was also some cargo listed as assorted merchandise, and this was likely valuable luxury items, some of which were also salvaged, and that included things like books, mirrors with gilt frames, and even ivory eggs, which sounds pretty cool. I'm imagining like crates full of ivory eggs. Probably it was just a couple boxes, but still. But the treasure ship reputation that this wreck has comes from the fact that the Frau Maria was on an art run at the time of its sinking for none other than Catherine the Great. Yeah, that's right. So if y'all know a little bit about Catherine the Great, maybe you've listened to the Catherine the Great series, you know that in the late 1760s, early 1770s, Catherine was really looking to beef up her court's reputation as a cultural capital, a cultural center that was equal to the courts in the rest of Europe. And to do this, she knew that she didn't just need to spend a lot of money. She needed to buy some really pretty stuff, you know, art and things like the works of Dutch masters. So that's exactly what she did. She used connections through Europe, guys like Voltaire, to set up these art deals for her and build the collection. And in July 1771, she had one deal like this go down. And it was a timber merchant who was having his estate auctioned off. He was also an art collector. And Catherine's ambassador to The Hague was sent off to take care of Catherine's interests and bid on some of these nice paintings. So what was lost 
in this wreck of those paintings because we know that she ordered them, but she bought them. Yeah, but a lot of them, none of them showed up, right? I don't think so. None of hers. (laughs) None of hers. So judging from the auction catalogs, as well as the doctoral thesis of Dr. Clara Bill from 1961, we can guess that the works were mostly of Dutch Golden Age painters, um, including Jan van Goyen, who made an appearance in the Tulip Tulip Bubble episode. Tulip Mania, yep. And there are 11 paintings that we know of, but it's fairly likely that there were more, since correspondence at the time shows that there was an extremely high value put on the that Catherine bought. Yeah, but our big question is, if the paintings went down with the ship, are they still down there? And what kind of condition would they be in? And it's pretty hard to say because as of now, a diver can't safely enter the hold of the ship. It's too rickety, even though it's in really good condition. Um, and the condition of the the paintings themselves might really depend on how they were packaged because if they were stored in crates in their frames, they probably would have been destroyed a long time ago. They would be sitting in water since the 1770s. But here's the the interesting part. If they were cut from their frames and rolled up, like the the canvas, some of them were panel paintings, so that wouldn't have worked for them. But the canvas paintings were cut and rolled up and then stored in a lead-sealed box, there's a slim chance that they would still be down there in in reasonable condition. That would be pretty cool. But even if they don't come up someday as miraculously preserved master paintings, they'll still be treasures if anything survives. I mean, it's Catherine's lost collection. Yeah, pretty cool. So our next ship, we're going to switch gears a little bit and go from a merchant ship with art to a pirate ship with gold. Yeah, I feel like we've talked about pirates a lot lately, but hopefully you're like us and you can never get enough of those pirate stories because next we're going to talk about a ship called the Widda. And the story of the Widda shipwreck actually begins with a bit of a love story involving a pirate named Samuel Black Sam Bellamy. People really tried to pitch us on that aspect of it. (laughs) Yeah, they did. That was requested several times, I think, on Facebook. Now, Bellamy was originally from England, and it's said that he started as a legit merchant sailor, not a pirate at all. But then he moved to Cape Cod, Massachusetts in 1715, around age 26, 27, to pursue a career as a New England merchant captain. And when he got there, he fell in love with a 15-year-old girl named Maria Hallett. Yeah, but... The trouble was Maria's parents didn't really think that much of Samuel Bellamy, especially his fortune. They thought he was too poor to take care of Maria. So they refused to allow them to marry. So he decides he's going to set off and make enough money so that he can marry his girl. And he hears that there's some Spanish wrecks off the coast of Florida. And he went down to visit the ships and see if he could hopefully get rich quick that way. Yeah, but that was kind of a bust. Um, when he got down there, he realized that the ship really didn't have anything of worth that he could use to build his fortune. So at that point, he decided to turn to piracy. And it turned out that he was pretty good at it. He learned the trade by joining the crew of successful pirate Ben Hornigold, whose crew at one point included Edward Teach, also known as Blackbeard. We all know that name, I think. Hornigold's kind of a pirate mentor, it seems. Yeah, he actually mentored a bunch of 
famous pirates. But by 1716, Bellamy had actually overthrown him. So the student had become the master, so to speak. He led a mutiny against Hornigold and took over as captain of the Mary Ann, which was the name of the ship that they were on. And in Bellamy's first year of captain, the crew robbed more than 50 ships. So just to give you an idea of how successful he was, they were really good at this. And they also made some acquisitions, including a ship called the Sultana, which I think was also... A popularly suggested ship. Yeah, definitely. But capturing the Widow in February 1717 is said to be kind of the pinnacle of Bellamy's career. And that's because it was an enormous ship. I mean, it would be the pinnacle of anyone's career. It was a 300-ton ship, 100-foot-long galley, and it was practically brand new, too. It had been built in Benin, Africa, only two years before Bellamy ran into it in the Bahamas, not literally, stumbled upon it. Um, And it had been launched originally as a slave ship that was intended to work the triangle trade, you know, connecting Africa, West Indies, England. And so it had a lot of valuable stuff on board. It had spices and gems and ivory and a lot, a whole lot of gold and silver, maybe twenty to 30,000 pounds sterling. So... There you go. That's a pirate ship (laughs) waiting to happen. Yeah, definitely worth going after. And Bellamy did. His ships chased the Widow for three days before they finally captured it. And when he finally got it, he moved all his stuff over there. He moved like his cannon, all his things, his crew, and made it his flagship. He gave the Widow's former captain, Lawrence Prince, the loser in this situation, he gave him the Sultana. So it's a consolation prize there. (laughs) And after this win, the Widda and the Marianne started sailing north again towards New England. Yeah, and so most people think he was probably returning to Maria, or at least if you're going to be a romantic about it. But we don't know for sure because a huge storm hit the Massachusetts coast on April 26, 1717, just as the widow was sailing into Cape Cod. Yeah, and it was pretty bad. Wind gusts topped 70 miles an hour and the seas rose to something like 30 feet. The ship was inside of the beach, but it was trapped in the surf zone. So it got slammed into a sandbar, and it began to break apart. The ship was entirely split in half at one point, finally due to the wind and really large waves. And so of a crew of 146, only two men survived in the end. And Bellamy was not one of them. Well, and the two guys who survived didn't have a great deal either when they came out of it. One of them, Thomas Davis, who is a Welshman, was tried as a pirate in Boston, although it is through him that we have this story. The other, John Julian, managed to escape. But it is through Davis's testimony that we learn how much booty was aboard the Witta. The bulk of it's never recovered, too. So for a long time, it was kind of a, a treasure site for a lot of folks. Yeah, and luckily a cartographer at the time noted the exact location of the shipwreck. So in 1982, a Cape Cod diver named Barry Clifford was able to use that cartographer's map, his journal, and his letters to search for the Witta. And Clifford managed to find the shipwreck site in 1984. And since then, he's led several expeditions and recovered a lot of the ship's cargo. Brought a lot of it up, haven't they? Yeah, including cannons, coins, and probably... Most significantly, at least in the beginning, a ship's bell inscribed with the words, the Witta Galley 1716. Yeah, and our next shipwreck also features a pretty major relic that's also a bell. It's the Edmund Fitzgerald. And I have to say, this was probably the most requested ship 
of those 70-something comments we mentioned on Facebook. Oh, without a doubt. And I don't know if it's just because of the Gordon Lightfoot song or because it's fairly recent, but this shipwreck is definitely on a lot of our listeners' minds. And it's really a tragedy. And I mean, maybe because it's a more recent shipwreck. So we have the radio chatter and, you know, you have a closer connection to it all, but it's pretty sad. So before we talk about the wreck, though, we're going to talk a little bit about Lake Superior, which is where the ship went down. Yeah, Lake Superior is the largest freshwater lake in the world in surface area. It's 1,300 feet deep and 350 miles wide. It averages 40 degrees Fahrenheit year-round, and it's bigger than all the other Great Lakes combined. Yeah, but the most dangerous part of Lake Superior is something called the Shipwreck Coast. Not too surprising there. And the only way to really escape the storms that brew up on the lake is to enter Whitefish Bay. And so consequently, Whitefish Point which is at the approach of the bay, is littered with shipwrecks. Over 200 years, 350 ships have sunk there. And the last of these was the 729-foot ore freighter Edmund Fitzgerald, which for 13 years was the biggest ship on the Great Lakes. Yeah, its normal work was toting ore from Silver Bay, Minnesota, to steel mills on the lower lakes near Detroit. So on November 9th, 1975, the ship left Superior, Wisconsin, with 26,116 long tons of taconite pellets, which is basically processed iron ore. Yeah, but the weather got bad really quickly. And so the captain, Ernest McSorley, stayed close to another freighter called the Arthur M. Anderson, which was captained by Bernie Cooper. And it was just the two ships were going to look out for each other, stay nearby for safety. And so they headed toward the shelter of Whitefish Bay because, as I said, the weather was getting worse and worse. And as they passed by Caribou Island, Cooper remembered seeing the Edmund Fitzgerald get way, way too close to the shoals, risking scraping the bottom of the ship. But after that, he can't see the Edmund Fitzgerald anymore. The visibility conditions are just completely gone. There's snow, there's spray. I mean, you, you can imagine what a Great Lakes storm is, is probably like. Right. So that afternoon, McSorley radios to Cooper that his ship was damaged and slowed down, asking the Anderson to stay with him for safety. Yeah, but there aren't too many scary reports after that. It's It's not a report like the ship is sinking. It's just some damage. The weather keeps on getting worse, though. Yeah, at about 6.55, a monster wave comes down on the Anderson, and the ship kind of pops up, and there's another hit. And I think Captain Bernie Cooper describes it as sort of like shaking off water like a wet dog. Yeah, his ship. But then he also says, quote, I watched those two waves head down the lake towards the Fitzgerald, and I think those were the two that sent him under, because the last radio contact that he has with McSorley is at 710, and McSorley's last words were, we are holding our own. Still, it seems like they were doing okay. The radar signal is lost at 715, and at that point, they start to get worried. And by the time the Anderson could venture back, you know, um, Bernie Cooper was in contact with the Coast Guard. By the time he could venture back, they could only find two lifeboats. And it's unknown how exactly the ship went down, whether it broke or capsized or nosedived. But regardless, all 29 on board died and no bodies were ever recovered. In 1995, though, the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society started dives, and they did recover the bell, as we mentioned, leaving a memorial replica in its place. 
And as Sarah mentioned also, as we started the section, the Gordon Lightfoot's 1976 ballad, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, made the wreck famous. It's pretty well known. Yeah. So for our next ship, we're going to go back a little bit. This was another popular suggestion, probably because it has some connections to Henry VIII, the Mary Rose. Yeah, and this one was actually discovered a couple of different times over the years. For example, in 1836, a fisherman fishing in the Silted Sea off of Portsmouth caught his gear on something. And lucky for him, an early diver named John Dean was also working nearby, diving at the site of the wrecked Royal George. So the fisherman offers Dean half of whatever his gear was snagged on if he could help him free it. So Dean finds a piece of timber sticking out from the sea Floor. Then he finds a bronze gun, and it's the Mary Rose, Henry VIII's one-time flagship. Yeah, so Dean excavates the site for a few years and pulls up bronze and iron cannons and small artifacts. And then the whole thing is largely forgotten. You wouldn't think that Henry VIII's flagship would would go that way. <laughs> Seems like an odd thing to just have slip your mind. Yeah, that's what basically happens, though, until the late 1960s when a man named Alexander McKee takes an interest in the wreck and starts recruiting people with access to side scan sonar, of course, to check out the site. And over the next few years, 19,000 artifacts are recovered. And by 1982, the ship was actually raised, which was a huge international news story. It's installed in a museum today. But the really interesting thing about the Mary Rose is because it did sink so quickly, unfortunately, the crew, 400 to 500 people on board were, were killed. It's a really slice of life for, for Tudor time. Yeah, you can see the cuts of meat that sailors ate, the plates that they ate off of, and how they distinguished their belongings with personal markings, even if they were illiterate. So yeah. really fascinating. Yeah, it, so it's interesting in that way, but it's also just a really important ship. It's not just because it's preserved and we have all of these artifacts from it, it is of a a lot of importance historically, too. So in 1509, a teenage Henry VIII inherits the throne from his father, and his father's left him a a modest navy for the time. There are five ships. I know that sounds ridiculously small, but they would have been supplemented with rented vessels. And of course, you have all your uh, aristocracy, ar- aristocratic buddies who can loan you your ships when you need it too. But still, Henry VIII is thinking that he's got to beef up his navy because the French navy is quite formidable. Yeah, so Henry commissions a couple of modern Carvel hull ships built for really heavy waterline guns. One is the Peter Pomegranate, and the other is the Mary Rose, named for his favorite sister. Yeah, so during the First French War, the Mary Rose is Henry's flagship, which means that it would have carried the Lord High Admiral. And during the Second French War, the Mary Rose is the vice flagship, so very important. It's really at the top of its game. And in 1527 and and in 1536, again, it goes through major refits, the second of which probably added considerably to its weight, probably added some some guns and made it a lot heavier. But by 1545, it was definitely ready to fight in the Third French War. And that was good because the French fleet already vastly outnumbered the English. I think it was something like 200 ships to 80. And they were heading across the channel to engage the Brits somewhere between the Isle of Wight and mainland England. So early during the battle on July 19th, something goes wrong for the Mary Rose. It keels over and water starts to pour in through 
her gun ports. And before anyone can do a thing, the ship just sinks, just like that. And only a few survivors make it out, mostly the people who are up in the sails and and well above the top of the ship. So what happened? For a long time, historians have chalked up the sinking to some combination of wind and tide and handling error. But the French have long assumed that they were responsible for sinking the ship. And in 2009, some new research came out that suggests they might have been right. Yeah. University of Portsmouth geographer Dominic Fontana used geographical information systems technology, data from the recovery, tidal current patterns and skeletal remains to hypothesize that a French cannonball hit the ship, filling the hole with water, and that that is what happened. So the ship, after that point, likely maneuvered so that its broadside faced the French. So they could fight back. Yep. Shifting the water and ultimately causing the ship to capsize. Yeah, but the really interesting thing about this is Fontana thinks that people watching on shore would not have known that a cannon hit the ship. And the whole thing could have been covered up with a Tudor government conspiracy because it would be better to to blame it on your own guys or some kind of handling error or weather or tides than to admit, yeah, Francis, you sunk our ship. Yeah, that still fascinates me, the fact that you'd rather make a mistake. And conveniently enough, that ties us into our final entry for this list, where there's also a little bit of a a scandal, a government scandal involving the whole thing. Yeah, in this case, what happened after the shipwreck was so politically charged and just kind of tragic and horrifying, it was almost more famous than the shipwreck itself. So the story starts during the Bourbon Restoration. You may remember that from our recent Bourbon series. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Um, Napoleon was in exile. Louis XVIII was the new king of France. And the French frigate Medusa was on its way to Africa, transporting soldiers and also official passengers to reestablish the French colony at Senegal. Even the newly appointed governor, Colonel Julian Schmaltz, was on board. So on July 2nd, 1816, the ship ran aground off the west coast of Africa. And it's generally accepted that incompetent seamanship was what got the Medusa into trouble in the first place. The ship's captain hadn't served on a French ship for 20 years prior to this this journey. He was an aristocrat. He was recently returned from exile. And it said that he got the gig because he was pro-bourbon. And The king's ministers were obviously looking to put those kind of guys in power and get rid of anyone who'd served under Napoleon. Maybe a bad move in the case of um, military stuff. I'm not sure. But after the ship ran aground, they tried to refloat the Medusa over the next couple of days, but they didn't have any luck. So they moved on to Plan B because they really wanted to keep going to Senegal. It was still a couple hundred miles to the south of them. So... They were looking for anything they could do here. Yeah, and this decidedly shady plan B they came up with involved emptying out about 250 passengers into six lifeboats and putting the rest on this raft that they made out of spars and timber lashed together. It was about 149 men and one woman who ended up on the raft, mostly ordinary soldiers and a few low-ranking officers and civilians. And this raft, it was, it was fairly large. It was It'd about, have to be. Yeah. It was about 20 meters long by seven wide, which doesn't sound large enough to hold 150 people, no. but <laughs> it, it's pretty big, substantial at least. It had a mast and a sail and a small deck raised in the center. And the intention here was that the other boats would tow the raft to safety, this 200 miles that they were going. 
But it became apparent pretty soon that that was not going to work out. The raft was slowing the other boats down. It kind of looked rickety, like it might fall apart. So the tow ropes were deliberately cut, and the people on the raft were just left there, stranded with only a few provisions, no navigational equipment, this sad little sail. They, They were out of luck. And the situation from there deteriorated really quickly. By the second day or so, there was a mutiny and hand-to-hand fighting that resulted in about 60 deaths by the next morning. We were discussing this. We thought the mutiny happened really fast. Like, things got bad really, really fast. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking just... Second day? Yeah, maybe just desperation, being out there in the hot sun. I think from things I've read, they just went kind of batty. But yeah, yeah, it happened very fast. Bodies were dumped overboard, and more fighting took others out soon after that. So from there, things only got worse. Supplies ran out. People had to start drinking their own urine. Some people were badly injured when their limbs got caught between shifting spars, and they threw themselves overboard. Didn't want to be eaten because by the fourth day, all the survivors were practicing cannibalism, and meat was cut from corpses and dried on the mast before it was eaten. And by the eighth day, the fittest had taken to killing the weakest by throwing them overboard to extend the remaining provisions that they had. I believe that's how the one woman died. I think she was thrown overboard. Oh, gosh. So after about 13 days total, the survivors were found and rescued by another ship in the Medusa convoy. But by that point, there were only 15 men left. Five of them died pretty soon after. And two of the remaining 10, Henri Savigny and Alexandre Corriard, wrote an account of what happened. And it was published in 1817. That was very bad press for the Bourbon Restoration. Definitely. It became this huge scandal and increased tensions between the liberal and the royalist factions. And um, I believe that the royalist factions had to do some basically cover-up kind damage of saving. Control. Th- damage control, I think, is more accurate than cover-up. They couldn't cover up the situation that had happened, but I think they did try to, you know, pin the blame on certain parties and try to manage it from that, that standpoint. But most famously, this inspired Theodore Jericho's masterpiece, The Raft of the Medusa in 1819. And we were talking a little bit about that before. I mean, it's such a recognizable painting. I'm sure probably all of you have seen it and maybe just not known that it was based on a real I never knew the story behind it until today. So it's pretty interesting piece of art history knowledge. And it it wraps up this podcast nicely, too, I'd say. It really does. I mean, full circle. (laughs) Yeah, come full circle with something that you can look at now and compare to the story. And um, that's true of a couple of cases like the widow. There's a traveling exhibition going on of some of the finds from that shipwreck. The Mary Rose I mentioned, there is a whole museum devoted to that. And actually the Edmund Fitzgerald, too, there's a Great Lakes Maritime Museum with exhibits on the Edmund Fitzgerald. So probably wherever you are in the world, you can go visit some of these shipwreck museums and check out artifacts and look at pictures and maps. and Send us postcards. Yeah, send us postcards because we like them. And that brings us to listener mail. Yeah, we have one postcard here actually from Michael in Malaysia. And he says, Dear Sarah Dublina, I'm a Fulbright scholar in Malaysia and I really enjoy listening to your podcast. One fascinating bit of history that I came across during my time here is the story of the so-called White Rajas of Sarawak, a family of Englishmen, the Brooks, who founded a dynasty that ruled Malaysian Borneo for more than a 100 years. Often called the Kings of the Headhunters, it's an incredible tale that would make for a terrific podcast. Thanks for making history so much fun. 
right. Well, Thank you, Michael, for the suggestion. I think this has actually been suggested before, this topic. So maybe it it's has. one that we'll have to look into. Well, and I think I'm going to have to put that postcard up, like, right in front of my computer or something, since it's very picturesque. It's so tranquil. It's a beach scene. There's, like, a palm tree and a sunset. Sure to calm you down when you're on deadline. <laughs> pretty nice when I'm researching about shipwrecks. Um, our next email is from Angela in Mozambique, and she wrote, I just wanted to write to tell you how much I love and appreciate your podcast. I'm currently serving as a community health Peace Corps volunteer in Mozambique, and every time I'm able to get internet access Downloading your podcast is the first thing that I do. In fact, I'm such a fan that I've been spreading the Stuff You Missed in History class love to other volunteers all over the country, and you've become quite popular among our numbers. (laughs) On behalf of all of us, thanks for filling our read houses with entertainment and great info. I just thought this was so, so sweet, and I'm really glad that uh, all these Peace Corps volunteers in Mozambique are listening to the podcast. Yeah, Um, that's pretty rad. Yeah, she also suggests Great Zimbabwe, Queen of Sheba rumors, all kinds of neat stuff. So thank you, Angela, and uh, thank you, Michael. So keep sending us your ideas. You can email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com, or you can look us up on Twitter at Missed in History or on Facebook. And if you want to learn a little bit more about how to survive a shipwreck, should you, we hope you don't. Yes, they've Let's just put everywhere. us out there. We really hope you don't get in a situation, but we do have an article on our website called How to Survive a Shipwreck. Good to be prepared. It's good to be prepared for any situation. So you can look that up, read a little bit about it on our homepage at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal History. 
To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.